Welcome back to another exciting episode of Data for the People, the Paris 21 podcast. I'm your host, Johannes Jütting. I'm today here with Wolfgang Fengler. Hello, Wolfgang. Hello, Johannes. Great to be with you. Thanks so much, Wolfgang. Wolfgang is a lead economist at the World Bank. He's responsible for Southern African region, and he's also hosting a blog at the Brookings Institution. Wolfgang, can I kick off uh, with one question in terms of um, the pandemic and data? We have been talking about this for, uh, for quite some time in the podcast, and I would be really interested in your perspective as somebody who has been working on data and with data for a great part of your life. Is it a curse or is it a blessing for data and statistics, these pandemic times? Oh, personally, I think it's clear for me, it's a clear blessing. I think it may even be the ultimate turning point where data now becomes something that everybody can touch. You know, obviously so far we only touched the data in our bank accounts and that people would relate to how much money do I have in my bank, especially in Germany where we both are from. At the beginning of the pandemic, every day in the headline German news, you saw data from where? From John Hopkins University, because we didn't get our act together to get the data for Germany. We needed John Hopkins University to tell us how many incidents and how many COVID cases we had. Now, fortunately, Germany figured that out. And I think other countries are in the same situation that we have a number now. now you can debate the number, you can make the number better, you can debate the implications of the number, but there is a number and there is an effort to get the right number. And that is something that can be the turning point because I hope it's not just for COVID numbers that will have that type of data-driven focus, but for many other type of key data that are dominant our lives. So you see it rather as an opportunity in some countries, we have seen that there are huge data gap. As you were saying, people were asking for data, but the data wasn't there. So people started to complain, where is the data? And then later, where are the masks and where are the vaccines? On the one hand, how can it be that we have had from John Hopkins University data about Germany more in granular, eventually more real time than from our own statistical offices or on our own data ecosystem? My answer is very simple. I think we Germans are too perfectionistic and we rather we are scared to put a wrong number out. But we need to realize every number is wrong. There's very few except, again, your bank account number that may be super accurate. But it's okay if the number is wrong. It doesn't matter if the incidence in Munich is 91 or 91.5. It doesn't really matter. We have that, that sense that you put a number out there, your best effort, and then you keep updating it and upgrading it and improving it. And then you can find the quote-unquote error and adjust it. I think that's the lesson for, for other countries too, for other sectors. I wish we had the same system for any other disease or any casualty. We see how many people die from COVID, but people die from other reasons too. They die from car accidents, they die from diabetes, they die from cancer. I think we should have exactly the same system for all other diseases. And then actually we can do the same effort and says, what would it take to get cancer down to zero for everybody below 65, to get car accidents down to zero? All of this, we could have a similar debate if we now use that opportunity that the COVID data gives us and apply it to other sectors. And in healthcare, it's obvious. Some might argue, we now talk a lot about missing data and data is just simply not there and data gaps. Others might just argue we have too many data. We are confused. So at some point I recall that we have, and maybe we can switch also to look at some developing countries where even in those, eventually we had infection rate numbers, we had uh, R values, sometimes conflicting numbers. So there are so many numbers, all people get completely confused. And then they say, just in contrast, this could lead to evidence-based policymaking. But if those numbers are too many and nobody can really make sense of it, what do we do? 
No, I think you put it very well and you just said it, right? You need to make sense of the numbers and you have to be accepted. There can be, you need to make your best estimate. There's some historians who tried to calculate GDP in the Roman times. So if you can calculate the GDP of the Roman times, you should be able to calculate the incidence of any disease, including COVID in Tanzania today. Now, how do you do it? You can just start with some basics. Some numbers we do know that exist and they're probably correct, like the number of people, the number of economic activity, the number of the distribution of people, the age distribution. You have some numbers and these numbers are imperfect but they're probably, as you know best, and your institution is doing an amazing job in this respect, 100 times better than they were 20 years ago. And so let's just use what we have and don't be shy to say, let's make an estimate of COVID, of cancer, of car accidents for Tanzania, because some data exists and, and some things you can model and estimate. And then people, and then let's put it out transparently. And if people challenge it, then they should come up with a better number and that's fine. And then you improve it. Let's just think, what is the alternative? Alternative is things that then lead to conspiracy theories or quasi-religious type of, of beliefs. No, I think it's better to say there's a total number of Tanzanians, there's a total number of Tanzanian adults, there's a certain likelihood to get infected, there's a certain data that show you the infection rates, and through that you can narrow down to a number that seems to be sensible. just mentioned uh, that population numbers we have a good idea of how many people in this world you, you did a very fascinating TED talk that I can only recommend to watch uh, so watch out for Wolfgang Fengler's TED talk about population and how long will you live you are also an expert on Africa looking at the population dynamics in Africa looking at the pandemic how would you see eventually a change of projections with respect to population and also underneath the issue of poverty, which is, of course is closely related, population growth, poverty and African development with this completely unexpected shock of a pandemic. Yeah, there's a lot of interrelated issues as you just highlighted, right? There's population growth, there's overall development trends and there's the COVID shock that has an impact not as severe as in the rich countries, but in some cases more severe because if you're poor and get hit a little, it's worse than if you get a lot of and you're rich. But again, there's uneven and there's some recoveries in some regions and less so in, in others. And there's a commodity overlay in addition. But in terms of your core question, um, again, this is some, some of the, if you look closely at the numbers, it's actually quite surprising what drives population growth in Africa. The population growth in Africa, like elsewhere, is happening because people live longer, not because there are more children. At least that has been the case since the last 20 or 30 years. Obviously, there were more children at some point, but now the children survive. And as a result, there's less children than in the subsequent generation. So if you look at the total population growth in Africa, um, broadly, two thirds of the growth is because of adults. There's more adults than there used to be in 10 or 20 years ago. And there's a little more children, but that is fine because it actually compensates the lack of children elsewhere in the world, including in China, as we just learned over the last few days. So the short answer is don't be scared of population growth in Africa because it's driven by adults, which over time will actually help us create a demographic dividend or demographic opportunity. Uh, would emphasize the term demographic opportunity because you still need to use that. You need to create the better economic policies. You need to create systems that people can actually find a job or create their own jobs. COVID has not interrupted the big long-term shifts in the world. It's like a blip. You think of the growth of the consumer class. It is still, it's 150 million people per year. And this year will be the best year ever. Uh, partly because last year was the worst year ever. But still, the trend is continuous. And Africa slowly enters into this trend of consumer spending. It's still a poor continent, poorer than we can imagine, poorer than we have ever experienced. 
but way wealthier on balance than it was 10, 20 years ago, and also with a higher life expectancy. Now, as you indicate, some countries are challenges. These are the big frontiers of poverty reduction. If you think, what's the challenge of poverty reduction in the world? There's one very simple answer. It's just two countries. It's Nigeria and Congo DRC. And those two countries are very challenging, as we all know. Conflict-ridden, bad governance, misfunctioning oil economy, Nigeria. But these two countries will make up 40% of the total poor in the future. And so, yeah, I think Africa is more diverse than it has been. But still, the next 10 years, there will be very few talking about poverty in Asia. It will all be around Africa. Is there anything that Western countries, OECD countries, DAC countries, development assistance can do to, on the one hand, mitigate the shock, the overarching underlying trends will still continue from a development cooperation perspective? Overall, again, this is like in anything in life, right? The, the working in the machine room, the continuous good support gets not mentioned while somehow a headline news of some corruption scandal with some aid or some you know peacekeeper that misbehaves. All of this gets news, and rightly so, but there is an imbalance. Kenya is moving well, that Senegal has made huge improvements, all of this, or Vietnam, obviously, in, in Asia is improving every day. Several thousand people escape poverty is not a big message, and, but it has to do with the overall international system that has been supporting these countries with aid in the early days, with trade now. Aid in crisis is helping to stabilize. It helps the poor in Europe, and we know this through our social protection measures, and it helps also the poor in Africa and elsewhere. And so that itself um, shouldn't be underestimated, that there is just a support system by the OECD DAC countries, the international community, and the World Bank is providing a lot of budget support, which, again, partly through our soft loan window is also supported by the OECD and the DAC countries especially. Now, the bigger question, and this I think where you and your team come in, can we think of some more knowledge exchange and some data systems, given that the future economies everywhere will be data economies, how can Africa jump on the train of the data economy? And it has partly done this already. And, and there, again, I think it's much more the systemic support, the support that thinks of IP systems, the support that thinks of sometimes, you know, knowledge exchanges, people, students returning from, from various places in the world to Africa to start their startups. So that's probably then the second lag in addition to what I call the traditional financial support, which has still a big role to play. You just mentioned Kenya and you mentioned uh, technology and you mentioned um, opportunities. And it, I think I concur very much with your assessment that often in the media, we basically look at the things that went wrong. And so we wouldn't, the wonderful stories that there are about um, small scale entrepreneurs who make their interesting living with new technology that is uh, top notch in, in countries like Kenya, but also increasingly Senegal, Ghana, Rwanda, South Africa, and a few others. So we don't really hear about this. In terms of this knowledge economy, data science, AI, drones, big data, you have lived in Africa, you have seen it. Could you just tell me maybe one story or one example where you yourself were surprised of how things have been developing over the last 10, 15 years? Viewers and listeners know, obviously Kenya has been world market leader with what's called mobile money, which is not mobile banking, but it was actually transfer of money for those who don't have a bank account. 
And I'm saying this because at the time it was starting, there was no real cell, there was not real smartphones. There were just the old style cell phones. So the technological disruption was the business model, the way people exchange and trust a system that is non-trusting setting. And there was a big combination of a trusted brand that was Safaricom, of a, of a system that had agents that tracked you know, any fraud or issues so that you can create this mass amount of changing lives because the alternative was people move from the rural areas to the cities but the children the young children not they stay with the grandparents working child or working mother or father then works in the city and sends the money back home and in the past they either went on a risky overnight drive with the truck or the matatu or they gave somebody the money that trusted them to hand it over and often it was disappearing the money and like now in a click of a button the parent had the money or the grandparent in this case so the child could, could get to go to school again and the school fees would be paid that was a massive disruption of how some quasi corrupt system worked it was a big change a big innovation it was not high tech at that at that time now with smartphones you can make it much more high end so to say and most kenyans now have also smartphones so they can pay the electricity bill and don't have to stay in the queue and get their other challenges with that Are there some ideas of how we can overcome the bottlenecks from island solution to something that becomes country-owned and sustained? One example that's really very simple. So we take Kenya. Kenya has 50 million. Uh, you want to know where the poor are. You want to know where the old people are. You want to know where the millennials are. You want to know where they will be. So let's find it out. So how do you find it out? Either you use cell phone data, which is there everywhere because people have the data, uh, have cell phones. But the trick is, you know, there's privacy considerations. People have maybe two or three cell phones, others don't have a phone. So it's very hard to understand, also convert that data point into something. So somebody's calling often, maybe he is wealthier, etc. But you can do it also differently. You can use data from space and says, let's break down this country, 50 million people, five million in Nairobi, uh, a certain number of people in Kibera or in another place. And let's just make sense of these numbers. And when you have these numbers, Then you can say, yeah, well, I'm a hairdresser. I have a super cool idea. I'm the super brand now. Let me open 20 more shops, but I need the data so I know where my customers are. You know, I need female, middle class who need hair extensions, say. So I shouldn't drive around with a, with a car because it's way too expensive. I need a data set to know what I put on my shops. There are two opposing views to some extent. Some would say the pandemic is the last drop. It will all go very negative. I mean, there's an environmental challenge. Poverty will increase. The pandemics is just the beginning. More are coming. And then what I could see, you, I would put you more into the optimists, people and having this long-term view that you showed also through your tools like population.io and uh, the World Poverty Clock, where you show From a long-term perspective, we have all reasons to be positive. Can you share with the colleagues and friends here on the podcast a few arguments, things that make you looking positive into the future? I would first say look at the trend lines, not just at the headlines. You know, there is a reason why people live till 100. And that's not, it's not because the world is a horrible place. You listen, I may have a chance actually to live till 100 and maybe be healthy till 90. Uh, depends how you live, but also data will help you form that. And sure, there is a lot of challenges out there. Uh, and if everything would go well all the time, then this is not development. This would be a miracle. So 
Um, but if you think of the key metrics, and obviously it depends how you feel about your life. I can't influence every individual's person and obviously everybody has his or her challenges. But if you think of some key things people can agree on, children shouldn't die, people should survive, people should have more money. It's very hard to argue that the world is getting becoming a worse place. And, uh, and sure, we have challenges like with climate, but it seems there is also you know, a hidden revolution almost happening, especially in Europe. Actually, we have the same wealth. We are not poorer than 10 years ago, but we're much more climate efficient. Now we have to get much, much better, but it seems the path at least is there. We know with electric cars, with many other technologies, with green technology, you know, solar should not be imposed on people. Solar should be there economically happen. It's the cheapest now. So there's no, no reason to be, you know, that hang up on solar. Solar should be everywhere because it's the cheapest for that reason alone. But I'm happy to everybody who wants to challenge me because I know, especially in our home country, people are much more critical mindset. Um, but it is, I think, important to put it a bit in perspective with the longer term shifts. Well, thank you so much, Wolfgang. Uh, I recall Wolfgang Fengler is the lead economist of the World Bank. Thank you so much for joining this podcast. It was great talking to you. All the best to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Johannes. Thank you.